several of many of you here today are are visiting from out of town or here uh, with your moms. And so let me bring you up to speed. We have, as a church family, been journeying through these books uh, that we call First and Second Samuel. And so uh, whether you're visiting and need an update or whether you're like me and you don't have the greatest memory, let me uh, tell you a little bit about one of the characters before we get into today's text that's in today's passage and has been in the story in recent weeks. Uh, the, the dude's name is Abner, and Abner is the guy who has the power at this time in history that we're reading about, which is about 3,000 years ago um, in the ancient Near East. And the people of God, the nation of God, Israel, is divided at that time. They have two kings, and there's a battle going on uh, spiritually, morally, politically. <clears throat> Not so much physical violence right now in this chapter today, in these verses, but there is a, a battle. And, and the power leader in the north is this guy, Abner. Now, he's not the king. The king is Ishbosheth. But Ishbosheth is like a, a puppet king. And the guy holding the strings to the puppet, Ishbosheth, the king in the north, is Abner. He's the guy with the power, he is the leader. And he is not a great guy. He is incredibly selfish and self-focused. Uh, the New Testament would describe him as someone who is operating in the flesh. He's thinking of himself. He's a selfish and a power-hungry person. And it's easy to talk about him in, in a really distant way, but the reality is we, probably every one of us here, have some commonalities with him. We weren't uh, controlling a king. You and I aren't controlling a king or whatever, but... I don't know, I was thinking about one person in our home, I won't mention his name, but he's very tall and he has gray hair, and he sometimes wants, to wants the remote control in his hand. He wants the power. He wants that thing. And so before we move any further, let let's get that thing in his hand. So Abner was that kind of dude, but at a very different level. He's controlling the king. He's running most of the country. And he is incredibly selfish. One of the key verses in today's passage that I'm using to frame today's sermon is verse 6 in chapter 3. It says, During the war between the house of Saul, so that Ishbosheth is Saul's son, so the house of Saul is referring to this dynasty of the, the people of God, Israel, are divided right now, the house of Saul and the house of David. Abner, the, the dude with the power in the north, he had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. So this phrase, strengthening his own position, is what I'm using as, as a framework for today's sermon. Abner has been strategically strengthening his own position, and he's been pretty successful. And he essentially made Ishbosheth king and said, You're going to do what I tell you, and I'm calling the shots. And so he's been successful at becoming uh, the leader, strengthening his own position. 
If we switch gears now for just a moment for analogy here, for an analogy, if we, we shift gears to the world of, of investing today and we think about uh, strengthening your own position, one of the basic principles of investing is the principle of diversification. It's an investment strategy based on the premise that a portfolio with different asset types will perform better than one with few or one with just one. So strengthen your position. If you were a farmer in Iowa, a hog farmer, and all of your wealth, everything you have is tied up in the land, in the farm, in the hogs, and you have a, a friend who's starting, say, a gas station in the city, and he wants you to go in with him on that and be, become a partner, that would be an example of strengthening your position and having a diversification of assets. What I want to talk about today is not financial, uh, but spiritual. How do you and I strengthen our position in Christ? My own identity, when I'm thinking rightly, it is not in being a mountain biker, it's not in being a husband, it's not in being a father, it's not in being a pastor, it is in being a Christian. It is my identity, who I am, is someone who follows the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these other things, being a father, being a husband, being a pastor, being a mountain biker, all of these things can be taken from me. But the Bible teaches us that God will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And those of us who are in Christ, that is our identity. That is who we are. So how do we strengthen that position? Well, I want to suggest that today's passage is one of, of contrast. We, we learn really how not to live in today's passage. So we need to connect today's passage with contrasting New Testament or gospel truths about how to actually live, how to strengthen our position. We don't want to strengthen our position the way Abner did. He disregarded God's law. He disregarded the reality that he knew that God had anointed David to rule over the whole kingdom. He's just disregarding that. I want power. I can get it. I'm going to rule through Ishbosheth. This is not how we want to strengthen our position. So how do we want to strengthen our position in Christ? That's what today's sermon is about. So let's get into our text now, chapter 3 of 2 Samuel, and we're going to begin here at verse 1. It says, The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger. For those of you that haven't been here in recent months, God has anointed him many years ago to be king. And he is now finally growing stronger and stronger, chapter 3, verse 1 tells us. While the house of Saul, Saul has just recently died, this puppet king has been installed over part of the territory of Israel, the northern parts, the vast majority of it, Ishbosheth. While the house of Saul, that Ishbosheth, the puppet king, is growing weaker and weaker. That's verse 1. Uh, one commentator, Matthew Henry, he says this. He says, Saul's house, though beheaded and diminished, it would not fall tamely. There, there, there's a battle going on 
among the people of God. And the, even though Saul is gone and most of his sons are gone, one of his sons remains Ishbosheth, and the power play is going on, and, and it's, it's not going to become as God intended for some time with David ruling over the entire territory. Another commentator wrote this sentence, and this kind of jumped out at me to, as I was preparing for today. He said, weakness is an asset only when God's presence accompanies it. We have in verse 1 that David is growing stronger and stronger. That's a positive thing in verse 1. And, and we have that Saul, his house of Saul, is growing weaker and weaker. And so from a human perspective, from a political perspective, it's a negative thing. The, 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 the house of Saul, run by the puppet king Ishbosheth, is going weaker and weaker. So what I want to do is connect this idea of strength and weakness that we read about in verse 1 um, with the New Testament. You know, in our day and age and culture, weakness is something that is looked down upon. That was true 3,000 years ago as well. It is incredibly uncommon to hear someone boasting about weakness, whether it's physical weakness in body, whether it's political weakness, what is happening to the house of Saul in verse 1. It is incredibly rare. You could say it's countercultural. You could say it is radical to say that weakness is a good thing. That's why this sentence from this commentator jumped out at me that said, weakness is an asset only when God's presence accompanies it. God's presence is with David. He has anointed David to be the king. And he has taken Saul out in judgment. God has. And so from a political perspective, we are reading about strength and weakness and the strength is positive, and the weakness is negative. But when we look at the New Testament, we see something radically different about strength and about weakness in the New Testament. Take a look at a passage from the New Testament with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This guy who wrote this, a Christ follower, his name's Paul. He says this, he says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, that is a radical thing. This is a countercultural thing. Now, I don't know what your first thoughts are when you woke up today, but I would say 99%, you did not wake up today thinking, I delight in weaknesses. I delight in insults. I delight in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is radically countercultural. This is not what's taught in school. This is, what not, is not what, this is not taught by Hollywood. This is not taught in California today. This was not taught among all of the, the kings and, and queens of the ancient Near East. It was strength. But Paul is boasting about his weakness. 
a lie. Many of you know this. We don't like weakness. We don't like insults. We don't like hardships. But when they come, the Bible teaches us that we, in that condition, often turn to him. And he becomes strong in us. And we become okay. In fact, we can become joyful. Now, it's normal to be joyful when you're strong, when you're ruling the kingdom and you've got everything. Yeah, I'm joyful. But when you're weak, when you're insulted, when you're going through a hard time, when you're being persecuted, if you can maintain joy in that, wow, that is incredible. And Paul has learned how to do that through the power of the gospel, through a supernatural work of God. This is how we position ourselves for strength in Christ. This is what it looks like. So whether, we're, whether our life is, is strong or weak, what we're experiencing in life, that we can strengthen our position in Christ by recognizing that, that our circumstances are not going to be connected because of the power of God in my life to my own joy and satisfaction. It's going to come from Him. I heard from a friend this week whose bank account was hacked. I mean, that's, that's a hardship. That's a hardship. It is normal to be discouraged and depressed and downtrodden and angry and a whole variety of emotions when your bank account is hacked. Now, God willing, I, I don't know the outcome of insurance hopefully covered it. I, I don't know the, I didn't hear the final tally here, but I heard about the stress so I could pray for him. What the Bible teaches is that our God is living and active and he's so powerful and so beautiful and so with us that it's possible to go through a hardship where your bank account is hacked. In the world's eyes, that's bad, that's weak, that's a hardship and it is, but you can have joy, you can, you can, can be strengthened in your position in Christ whether you're experiencing strength or whether you are experiencing weakness. So, I'm saying how to strengthen your position in Christ is to value both strength, we value strength, but we also value weakness and hardship and all of those things that Paul mentioned. Because the reality is that this is when we mostly look to God. It's, it's difficult to look to God when everything's dialed and you're ruling the kingdom and, and the, the GDP is very high and, and there's peace and everything's going well. It's very hard to be utterly dependent upon God when, when, you're, when all is going well. So it's a difficult truth, but it is a supernatural, beautiful testimony to the power of the gospel. And I have seen so many people have joy in the midst of hardships like your bank account being hacked or other scenarios. Those are some of the best sermons I've seen in my own life. Paul, again, puts it this way. This is how he summarizes it in Philippians 4. He says, I know how to get along with humble means, being weak. I know also how to live in prosperity, strong. In any, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, whether I'm strong or weak. So, unapologetically, unapologetically I'm a little bit far from verse 1, but verse 1 is talking about strength and weakness, so I'm not that far. We're talking about political strength and weakness, and David is going stronger and the house of Saul is growing weaker. 
And now, if we come back to our text in 2 Samuel 3, we get some evidence of the strength of, of David's house, David's dynasty, David's kingdom. So let's come back to our text here. Look at your Bibles or listen to me. 2 Samuel 3 and verse 2. It says, Sons were born to David in Hebron. His first was Amnon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Kiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom's son, Absalom, the son of Mekah, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Stephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ethriam, the son of David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. So I don't know if you were tracking with me here, with the text here, what is actually happening. Here's what's actually happening. What I just read, here is an account of six sons he had by six wives in the seven years he reigned in Hebron. David's been busy. He has six sons from six wives, and they're mentioned here. Now, if you're not used to reading the Bible or texts that are 3,000 years old, or the text isn't necessarily 3,000 years old, but these events happened 3,000 years ago. We're not sure when it was written. This can be a little troubling reading what's going on here. Um, again, a commentary, commentator says this, as the death of Saul's sons weakened his interest, so the birth of David's strengthened his. So what I'm trying to do now is take all of you and me back to what life was like 3,000 years ago. And what life was like 3,000 years ago in the ancient Near East is the metric for the power of your nation and your king was how many wives your king had. Now, this is not a good thing, but this was reality. The Bible deals with reality, and this was the reality of life in the ancient Near East. As I was thinking about it for today, I thought about metrics for today and how powerful countries are. Especially during the Cold War, but even today, one of the metrics that we have for how powerful a country is, we have many metrics, but one of the metrics that we have is how many nuclear warheads we have. How many we have. How many Russia has? Remember that? The arms race, Cold War? Anybody old in here? We kind of still have that going on, actually. We just got out of this treaty, and, and it's kind of back on. We had a treaty like, hey, we're going to stop doing that. I mean, have you seen the pictures of Hiroshima or Nagasaki? It's not really a cool thing to brag about how many nuclear warheads we have. It's not really a cool thing to brag about how many wives you have. But this is reality of a metric of the power of a nation. 3,000 years ago and today. Now, to also respond to the difficulty that some of you have in reading 2 Samuel 3, let me say that these few verses I just read, let me just say God is not for this. Okay? What we just read. This is an indicator of the power of David's house, his dynasty, this is not according to God's law. Look at Deuteronomy 17, 17. This is a, a law, Torah, for the ancient king of Israel. He, 
must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Paraphrase. The king of God's people should be very different than the kings of the world. Sadly, that was often not the case. So we have a description of reality here. How does this relate to your life and my life? This relates to your life and my life because in general, what we have here is disobedience to the law of God regarding kingship and regarding marriage. Look with me at a quotation from the book of Genesis in the New Testament from Ephesians 5. And in this particular translation, when they quote the Old Testament, the the English translation when it quotes the Old Testament, the New Testament, it puts it in capitals, capital letters. So that's, uh, I didn't do that. That's what this particular New American Standard Bible does. So that you know this is a quote from the Old Testament. But Paul quotes the Old Testament in Ephesians 5. And he says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here's your quiz for today, church. Look at the screen. There are two numbers in this verse, the numbers in capital letters. What is the first number? Two. How many people are supposed to be in a marriage? Two. (laughs) Two. Two. How does this text, this listing of David's wives, and his power relate to us. It relates to us a lot. If you looked to the the state of California or to the leaders on our UC campuses, I don't want an answer here. (laughs) How would they define marriage? They are not looking to God's word in how they define marriage. We have a confused culture. 3,000 years ago, we had a confused culture about marriage. We have a confused culture about marriage today. It doesn't need any explanation, and I'm not going to provide it. The Word of God is relevant to you and to me. David is growing powerful in a way that other kings grew powerful. And David, even though he is a man after God's own heart, he is a man unlike Ishbosheth, unlike Abner, someone who is actually seeking God. But like you and me, he has fallen, he is broken, and he is not obeying God in many ways. So how to strengthen your position in Christ? Perhaps we should follow God's word regarding what it says about marriage, and also what it says about singleness. We should not take our cues and our directions from YouTube or the leaders at our UC campuses or from the state house about what marriage is and what a family is. 
we should look to the Word of God. There's sadly a long history of cultures ignoring what God says about marriage. That it is between two people, a man and a woman. One man and one woman. Each making those two making one flesh, going back to Ephesians 5. So follow God's word regarding singleness and marriage. Let's look at a couple texts about that. Proverbs 18. He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Marriage is a good thing, and it is to be celebrated. It is to be sought out. But kind of going back to what this letter I read from the 1800s, it isn't for everyone. Look at what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 7. He says, I wish that all men were as I am. For those of you not familiar with 1 Corinthians 7, what Paul is saying there is, I wish you were all single as I am. I wish you were all celibate men like I am. That's what Paul's saying. He's speaking from the heart. But he realizes that's not God's plan for all men to be single and celibate. So he says, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this, another has that. What I'm trying to say, church, is that we need to look to God's word in order to find our position and be strengthened in Christ. Follow God's word regarding singleness and regarding marriage. So a text that can seem so far from us, um, 3,000 years ago, actually has a lot to do with our lives today. Well, let's come back to our text, a short passage today. I want to finish up with verses 6 through 11. So we have kind of three units here, the intro, verse 1, this, this, uh, this metric of David's power in this ancient culture of the equivalent of nuclear warheads in some ways. And now we come to this battle between Abner and Ishbosheth, this really pretty nasty and personal battle. Verse 6. So during the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, the people of God, the politics, and the people of God are divided here. Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. As I've already said, he's doing this in fleshly ways, in selfish ways, ignoring God's word. Verse 7. Now Saul had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Ea. For those of you visiting today or haven't been here, so Saul was the previous king. He's now dead. And the metric in the ancient Near East was for having so many wives that they came up with a second category of wife. So a concubine, if you're not familiar with that word, it's like, like a, a wife second class. Not a good thing. But it was part of culture 3,000 years ago. So we're talking about a second-class wife of Saul's. Now Saul had this second-class wife named Rizpah, daughter of Ai. And Ishbosheth, the puppet king, says to Abner, the dude controlling the strings, why did you sleep with my father's concubine? This is a pretty heated charge here. Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said. And he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? Now, that's not a common term today, a dog's head. So a little bit of background here. So, like, we have, like, hotels for dogs. Did you know that? 
I was down in Southern California. I think we have them here too. But we're down in Thousand Oaks visiting. Right south of Thousand Oaks, there's this really bougie town, Westlake Village. You guys been there? And they have like a hotel for your dog there where you have 24-hour video communication with your dog when they're in the hotel. So you got an app, and so, so you go on vacation to Switzerland, and you want to see what your dog's doing at 3 a.m. in Westlake Village, California. So you pull out your phone, and, and you look on the app, and you can see your dog and what your dog's doing. So we didn't put our dog in that hotel. But dogs were not treated that way in the ancient world. Dogs were like vultures. Dogs were literally like the vultures that we see on the side of the road when there's a carcass there. That's what dogs were in the ancient world. Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day, I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet now you accuse me of an offense involving this woman. That language sounds familiar. You've accused me of an offense involving this woman. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath. You see what's going on here? Here's a guy who has been jockeying for power against David. He knows that David has been anointed king. And he is right here switching sides because of this accusation, which I think was a true accusation, but we're not told in the text. He's about to switch sides. He's about to leave the puppet king, Ishbosheth. Verse 10. If I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba, Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was so afraid of him. This is an interesting thing here. So Ishbosheth, this is the first time we see courage on him where he actually confronts confronts Abner for messing with his father's concubine. But now he's right back in this timid, cowardly, afraid place in verse 11. And Abner has now switched sides. He is now saying he's going to go over to the house of David. It doesn't take a sophisticated theological degree to see that Abner is full of himself. Abner is not concerned with God's glory. He is concerned with getting with what Abner wants. He has been called out here. He has been caught. And so he is just saying, essentially, I'm going to turn you over. And the one that God has chosen to be king over the land, I'm going to turn you over to him, and he's going to be king over the land. How does this relate to your life and my life? Well, again, we would like to think of Abner as like this, this distant evil person that you and I ha- have no commonality with. But the reality is, it's pretty easy for you and me to live life being full of ourselves and being selfish in our own ways. Our ways are different than Abner's, but we have the same selfish disease. We were born with it. Abner is full of himself. He is not concerned 
with the glory of God. And so another way to strengthen your position in Christ is to have the grace of self-forgetfulness, of forgetting the things that I may want for myself in the flesh that are contrary to God's law and God's word. Now this isn't, the Bible isn't saying here, don't have any fun. Don't have any joy. The Bible is actually saying the opposite. What the Bible teaches, if Abner understood the right theology of marriage, it would be if you want satisfaction, if you want to enjoy a woman, be committed to her until death and serve her as Christ loved the church. That is how to maximize your joy and forget your selfish seeking ways. We need the grace of self-forgetfulness, and we need God to help us to live for his glory instead of our own. So I'm saying the grace of self-forgetfulness is how we strengthen our position in Christ, plus we need to pray, hallowed be thy name. And that doesn't mean, just talking with one of you recently about this, this doesn't mean, God, I want to help you to be a holy God. He he is a holy God. He, He doesn't need your help or my help or anyone else's help. If all the nuclear bombs went off in the world and we all died, God would continue to be the same degree of of holiness. There's nothing we do. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, what we are really praying is that my life would be lived in such a way that you would get glory and people would see that you're holy and beautiful by the way that I live my life. Help me to live that way. This is very far from how Abner is living. And in and when it comes to marriage, marriage relations, it's actually also far to how David is living. David is not following Torah in 2 Samuel 3. He's following the playbook of ancient Near Eastern kings. You and I desperately need to pray that God would be glorified in our lives. Instead of living for self-promotion, we are going to find ourselves way happier, way more joyful, living the life that we actually want to live, that we may not know we want to live, by loving our neighbors and by loving God and by actually obeying God's word, especially what it has to say about singleness and what it has to say about marriage and what it has to say about weakness. Let's bow our heads together and ask him to help us to be the kind of men and women he wants us to be. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your word. At times, at first reading, it seems really distant from me. That's how I felt when I first read this passage early this week. But after seeking your face and, and praying over this passage, I see how incredibly relevant 2 Samuel 3, 1 to 11 is this culture of ancient kings in the ancient Near East were actually very similar in all sorts of ways. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who might be thinking that God doesn't know what he's talking about when it comes to marriage, and we are somehow more sophisticated 
and wiser and more tolerant. Lord, free us from that kind of selfish thinking. Help us to put ourselves under the authority of your word. And Lord, another thing that is more than difficult, it's, a, it's impossible apart from your spirit and grace, for those of us who are experiencing hardships or persecutions or trials, uh, Lord, help us to look to you. And by your grace, would you strengthen us and make us strong, not only when we're strong, but make us strong uh, when we're weak, when we're suffering. And may the Lord, the joy of the Lord Jesus be our strength. We pray in his name. Amen.